This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's go back in time to 1932 as Congress brings you historic footage of the legendary original Celtics with whom all great professional teams are compared. We have now taken over your radio. Richie Guerin is about to show you the most important step in getting past a man. It's the first one. And Oscar will inbound it. The men in green, the Milwaukee Bucks, that's Al Cinder against Bellamy. Has Jordan. Allen shakes great. Gets two. Yomar on Stop. Oh. Oh, brother. Lead to lead artist. You get 21. 4.28 to go in the first quarter for the Cow Palace. Here's Barry. Hello and welcome back to the Over and Back Classic NBA podcast. I am Jason Mann and with me as always is Rich Krejci. Rich, uh, great to be back with you, although it's for a sad reason. Yeah, unfortunately, we, we, we get these and we were kind of wrestling with this idea and, and we've done it from time to time, you know, since we've been doing this podcast now for a little over a year of, you know, when these sort of things happen, when, you know, an NBA legend passes away, who who is worthy of, you know, us dropping everything and doing a podcast. And it's not that not all of them are because we, we've done a few where we've, you know, kind of unfortunately combined, you know, guys that have recently passed away or whatever. But this one was kind of a no brainer. The second it happened, I think you messaged me, I messaged you and we were just like, yeah, we, we, we have to do this because not, maybe not, you know, an all time great legend player but an all-time great legendary character in NBA history and basketball history really so yeah it was a no-brainer that this guy deserved a special podcast for him so, you know absolutely Daryl Dawkins Daryl Dawkins died at age 58 this week and um was just a you know influential character in terms of very colorful um helped I think lead to sort of a a rise of a in the NBA of the dunk as sort of a uh, marketing tool that kind of brought uh, young people and I, I definitely know that for me um, when I was a kid in growing up in the mid to late 80s like even though he was basically he was basically done with his career by then you know the the the, the you know the the rim shattering, glass shattering slam dunk was definitely something that like I knew about and that I knew oh, yeah, he had done it, you know, and, and that was just like uh that, that was part of like this, you know, lure of basketball was seeing all these guys and have these great dunks, his, his teammate, Dr. J and, and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, you just, yeah, a, a, an incredible character, uh, 
a really interesting guy. He was a guy who, you know, when we first started talking about doing the pod, you know, the over and back podcast, he was a guy that was, you know, on the short list for guys that we, uh, you know, want to do a show on. It never got the chance until now, but. Um, and we, uh, bef- you know, we'll kind of get through some of the particulars of his career um, later on the show. But we wanted to start off. We have a very uh, special guest, uh, uh, Yago Colas, uh, who writes for uh, at YagoColas He writes about the uh, culture of basketball. He also has an upcoming book on that subject called Ball Don't Lie, which we'll talk about uh, a little bit later. But uh, Yago, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. And. Um, so, uh, you, you know, Dawkins, you know, the, the, the first thing that stands out to me is that is, is just, you know, the, the incredible, um, you know, gamesmanship, the um, and the just the, the great dunks that I, I do think like during that time period in the late 70s and early 80s, there was, I think, more of an openness for the NBA to kind of embrace the dunk, like as an organization. I mean, players would certainly do it from time to time. Early on in the NBA's history, the dunk was viewed as, you know, it, something you didn't do was showing you up. If if you did it, you'd get knocked down. Um, later in the 60s and 70s, it became more, you know, it, it accepted, at least in the program and in, in the college game, it was banned for a while. But I think, you know, by the late 70s, early 80s, it was something that like the NBA was was um, opening up as you know, to be a real major part of of how it marketed the game, and that was you know during a time for, for that and for other reasons that the NBA grew in great popularity. Do do you think of him as a a big contributor to dunk culture? Do you kind of agree that you know what, what are kind of some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a great uh, topic. Um, I think you've got the chronology pretty much right in the sense that it was definitely. Um, over the period of time between the late seventies and through the early mid eighties that something you could call dunk culture kind of, um, began to appear in the NBA and among NBA fans and then to kind of really grow. Um, I think that it's kind of interesting when you break it down a little bit and you think about Dawkins dunks and you probably know that when he broke the backboard and then broke it again, three weeks later, the NBA kind of panicked. Um, and began to levy fines for this. Um, so I would say that I think about dunk culture in the NBA and in general, I think about culture of basketball in relation to the NBA in terms of the sort of institutional culture that the NBA fosters and then a more kind of subterranean, uh, maybe even insurrectionary culture that fans of the league may tap into. Uh, that the NBA both tries to capitalize on and keep under wraps. And I think that Daryl Dawkins, uh, as far as dunk culture goes, is definitely part of that subterranean kind of uh, tendency or force um, <clears throat> that operates in the league. Um, his teammate, as who you mentioned, Julius Irving, of course, uh, kind of pioneered the halftime dunk contest at the All-Star Game with his 76 free throw line dunk uh, in the ABA. Um, and I think that, you know, he probably had more to do with dunking in a way that the NBA began to feel might lend excitement to the game. Um, Dawkins probably in a way that the NBA felt was a bit alarming. Uh, um, you know, it, his dunks, I think, express the kinds of things that dunks can express strength, force, rage, destruction. Um, and that the NBA is not all that comfortable with as value that they want to promote, um, and especially as values that they um, would like 
That is to say, they wouldn't like to see those values uh, embodied by a large black man. So uh, I think there's a way in which for the NBA, Irving was probably more of a gateway uh, for the dunking of, say, Jordan, um, which, of course, the NBA loved um, and marketed um, all over the world, than Dawkins, who I think was a little bit too much on the edge of what the NBA was scared of. Don't forget that he was doing this, you know, breaking backboards around the time that Kermit Washington was breaking Rudy Tomjanovich's um, face with his punch. Um, and so there's an association of dunking with violence, with blackness, all those kinds of things that the NBA gets real nervous about. Mm-hmm. You know, in another way, he was kind of a threat to the kind of the way things were at the time was that he was the, the first NBA player and only the second, you know, in, in either league to um, be drafted uh, straight out of high school. And, exactly. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's interesting I, I think how that sort of filters into how he is perceived. He was always sort of perceived as someone who had raw talent, but didn't necessarily make the most of that talent, which I think right. is, I mean, you know, there is some, I think, validity to that. At least it, it, it seemed like he could have done more. And his teammates talk about that, you know, maybe his practice habits weren't the best or whatever, but I do feel like that's also a convenient way for fans to look to, to sort of thumb their nose down at a player. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, and certainly I think there's a lot of racially based, um, you know, uh, views, you know, regarding that, you, you know, it, it, you, uh, a fan might see someone who just looks like they should be able to dominate and doesn't quite understand why. And that, you know, and, and that kind of, obviously there's, that reflects upon other things in uh, society for people who, you know, who um, have benefits and people who don't. Yeah, that that's probably true. I mean, I, you know, when I encounter that sort of um, attitude, judgmental attitude about players who appear not to be achieving their potential or what have you, um, I always just kind of wonder, and if I'm working with students, ask them, what's your stake in this exactly? Um, that is to say, why are you invested in this player becoming a certain kind of player or making sort of achieving certain things as a player? Um, and I wonder too about the single mindedness of fans who measure, um, value, the value of players in relatively narrow ways. I mean, of course, everything in sports culture leads us to be looking for players to be productive statistically and their contributions to team wins and so forth. But, you know, sports is also entertainment, and a lot of us are into it for that reason as well. And, you know, it may be that um, Dawkins is a good reminder of the value that personality and character can add to the game. And I don't mean the kind of sort of 19th century character that means you just, you know, keep your nose to the grindstone and practice and all that, but but character that reminds us that it's a game and that it's for fun. Um, and... He's enjoying himself and hopefully, you know, helping other people to enjoy themselves. And I feel a little bad for fans that can't appreciate that or or for whom worries about lost potential get in the way of just appreciating that. 
Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. It's something we've sort of talked about a lot on this podcast, and it's something that's actually doing this podcast has helped me a lot because you know, and, and not that I was always you know on board with a lot of the you know the hyper competitive guy. I mean, there's a lot of guys that are are renowned NBA players. You know, you guys like a Kobe, you guys like a, you know, I grew up in Chicago, Michael Jordan yes. or whatever. Where you know when I was growing up, it was like yeah, titles, championships, wins, woo, and all that sort of stuff. And more and more as I've matured, I've gotten less. You know, I'm, I'm becoming less fans of those guys and more fans of guys like Daryl Dawkins, who, yeah, you know what, <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't maybe win as much as I wanted to, and I didn't do all that sort of stuff. But that, not that they're like, there's something to be said for the guys that are, you know, not visceral. Like I have to win, I have to create narratives in my head to try to take you down and and you know destroy you and destroy you know your family. And that you know, there's there's guys that NBA guys where that's just that's it. And there's fans that that respond to that. They think that every single NBA player needs to have this just un you know untenable killer instinct yeah. that to 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 win or whatever. And and I've gotten older. I've been like, you know what? There are guys like that. I mean, there and I think. I don't think it's an effort thing. And and that's always what I've sort of grown up and sort of realized is that, you know, maybe a Daryl Dawkins, I don't think he didn't, quote, reap his potential or whatever based off of effort. I think he was just a guy who, you know, had a certain set of skills. And he even talks about it as well, that he came into the league and everybody said, hey, you're, you know, tall and good. You're Wilt Chamberlain. And he was like, no, no, no. I, you know, yes. I, I came into the league as a high schooler. I'm in no way refined and no way ready to do this. Exactly. And he never really quite got it. And and that's not a bad thing. It's just a guy that seems even at the time to be aware of his limitations or whatever, but you get a little, and then you see, you realize a guy who sort of understands what he is then. And and you kind of get that throughout his career is that, you know, once he's just started letting the game kind of come to him and enjoy the game and entertain himself and entertain the fans. And, and, you know, it's not like he didn't contribute to his team's winning. I mean, he was still a very good player. Yeah. He just wasn't the quote, Oh my God, you're, you know, six foot 11, 250, And you're a, a strong black man. You can dominate. And it's like, well, you know, <laughs> maybe I can't like, yeah. I don't have the skills to do it. Like, and I never thought it was effort for him and, and going back and looking at all the stuff that he did and, and just reading about his career and all that sort of stuff, you get an appreciation for a guy who, who just went out there and was himself. And I think there was a quote in one of the stories that I read that that was great. Um, I think it was the one that Dave Wool wrote, and we'll, we'll talk about it here in a little bit. His former coach in Sports Illustrated, and he said one of the quotes was Daryl Dawkins said, "I wouldn't change a damn thing. I always liked being Daryl Dawkins." And I, that's perfect. Like I read that quote, and I said, "Yeah." And that's a guy who, after his career, was able to sort of reconcile the fact that he was, you know, somewhat out of the game, but was able to give the game to other people. He enjoyed the game so much when it was over, where some guys get so burnt out because every day is, you know, life or death for them, where he's a guy who doesn't mind going and coaching, you know, 10-year-old girls. When, you know, if you read his Twitter account, you see pictures of him just hanging out at, like, rec centers or whatever and, like, teaching people the game. Like, he never seemed disenchanted or, you know, disenfranchised with the game because I think he never made it anything less than something he enjoyed. And I, I respect that. That's a guy now that I've gotten a little bit older and, and doing this podcast and other stuff. I enjoy those sort of guys that can just enjoy what they're doing and enjoy the game and enjoy themselves and be happy with what they are and what they've accomplished. And, and Daryl Dawkins absolutely strikes me as one of those guys that, that did not care kind of how his career went. I think he was very happy with what he did and what he accomplished. I think there's and yeah, should be. two really important points. Uh, I want to stress in what you said. I think first of all, just that you kind of rescued the fact that it's not like he sucked. Um, no, God. you know, and, and it's important as we kind of talk about how fans sometimes may judge him that way. Um, to kind of emphasize that that's actually just a misperception um, that people may have, um, and they may exaggerate his weaknesses as a result of that. Um, but I think the other point that's especially important and I think has a lot to do with why pe- people sometimes do make these kinds of judgments, and that is, um, you know, your characterization, and by all accounts, I seem that way to me too, um, that he's somebody who's comfortable in his own skin, happy being himself. 
And I think that there's a lot of fans that aren't. Um, and they look to NBA players who appear that way, especially those who, you know, aren't, who for whatever reason the fan imagines could be doing more, could be working harder. And I think there's a lot of projection on the part of fans of their own uh, failures and their own disappointments and their own bitterness. Um, and they kind of project those onto NBA players. And um, I think we see that Daryl Dawkins is not unique in this respect. Um, but somebody who appears carefree rubs some people the wrong way who aren't carefree. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's better for the world to have people who are more about fun than necessarily just being single-minded about their jobs. I mean, I, I think you can respect, like, someone, you know, who's just a complete professional and has the awesome work ethic like Tim Duncan without feeling like denigrating Daryl Dawkins just because he didn't quite have that, even though, you know, he had a 12-plus a, a year career as a player, uh, yeah. contributed to winning teams, and certainly, you know, worked hard by, you know, any standard um you know, that you could basically think of yeah. any NBA player, you know, of any length of a career is going to have to work very hard. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. I, I think there's one the other thing that's a little bit part of that is maybe I, I think we get some this sometimes not just in sports, but just kind of in, in culture, like people who feel like that somebody's level of fame is bigger than their talent. <laughs> yes. And and I I think that really is, there, there's kind of an ugliness to that as well or, or you know are bigger than their you know than their production as a as a player in in this case you know um, that I think like if somebody usually a lot of it's the times it comes through the dunk contest um, like somebody will mm -hmm. like, win the dunk contest and suddenly there's heaps of expectations on them even though yeah they're great at dunking and they're not great at other aspects of the game but I I feel like there's definitely a backlash some uh, often when that, you know, goes poorly. Yeah, I think so too. And I think something that, you know, contemporary fans may forget, I think I'm a bit older than you guys, just, just from when you mentioned that you were growing up. Um, so I was born in the mid sixties, but you know, a, a high school player today coming out has source training, um, conditioning, nutrition, just knowledge of the game that, for a contemporary generation of fans who are used to 18-year-olds who are, um, well, obviously they're not coming straight out of high school, but you know, after a year of college or a year abroad, and they have benefited from a kind of mentorship, training, knowledge about fitness and conditioning and nutrition um, that was not available to players coming out of high school in the 1970s. So there's also kind of two different standards at work, two different contexts that I think people may not be taking into account depending on you know, what generation they are um, when they think about Dawkins and what he could have done. I mean, I just think, I think he probably did exactly what he could have done. Uh, yeah. And it was remarkable on a lot of fronts. As you said, you know, an excellent individual player, contributor to some excellent teams, and um, a terrific entertainer, and culturally a really important figure in the history of, of the league. Yeah. Um, do you have any specific memories uh, that stand out to you uh, um, for, for Dawkins? Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, th those Sixers teams um, of the late 70s leading up to the ones that won in 83 that he was no longer a member of, um, they were my best friend's favorite team. And um, I had was actually born in Portland, Oregon. 
So at that time, I'm somewhat embarrassed to say I was a partisan of the Trailblazers. Um, and um, so, of course, in 1977, you know, they faced off in the finals. And um, my friend and I played those games in our driveway. Um, and I was 12, he was 13 or 14. And um, I was always a little bit jealous um, because he was the Sixers. And it looked like so much more fun to be the Sixers, <laughs> um, including Dawkins. Uh, than to be the Blazers. <laughs> yeah, you had to share the ball, and you could I had to dunk, share the ball, you know, and I'm <laughs> shooting jump shots. You know, it's just <laughs> not no fun. really fun. Uh, so yeah, he, you know, I came around. At that time, I was still struggling with, you know, who I might be and what basketball meant to me, and it still means a lot of different things to me. But, but that's an early memory that he's a part of. Of, of there being parts of the game that were fascinating to me, but that I didn't quite have access to yet. Uh, so, um, so, so Yago, you have a uh, you have a book coming up uh, about the culture of basketball called uh, Ball, Ball Don't Lie. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about it? Right. So, um, Ball Don't Lie um, is the name of the book. It'll be coming out um, in early 2016, being published by Temple University Press, um, and its subtitle is Myth, Genealogies, and Invention in the Cultures of Basketball. And I mention that because each chapter. Um, addresses a myth, a genealogy, and what I call an invention for nine different moments in the history of the game, beginning with the invention of the game by Naismith in 1891 and ending in the last chapter with LeBron's decision to leave Cleveland um, and go to Miami in July of 2010. And basically what I try and do for each of the moments, for each of those moments and all the ones in between that span from the foundation of the league to the uh, Russell Chamberlain rivalry to the Knicks to Iverson and Jordan um, is uh, try to look at particular stories that get circulated time and again um, among fans um, that crystallize around these figures and that are oftentimes not true or if not entirely false, not the whole truth. And I try to figure out why they do so much work for us. Why do we get so invested in them? Why do they stick uh, and persist, um, even as historians and others begin to show us that the facts are a little more complicated. Um, so I kind of look at that, and then I also try to offer a context in which we can see those myths differently with a critical eye, complicate their story a little bit, and in the end, in each invention, so there's an invention for each of these figures, I try to tell a different story about those figures, one that I think is more interesting, entertaining, fun, speaking of Daryl Dawkins and fun, um, but also um, I think one that I would say politically is more, mm, let's say, amenable uh, to me in that I think what I have found in my research is that the myths that have really stuck in basketball history tend to be um, very conservative, if not at times authoritarian and at times serving racist agendas, not to say that anybody in particular who is purveying those myths is racist, but simply in an institutional level that they tend to support kind of racist operations of NBA and basketball culture. So I'm interested in kind of breaking those myths up a little bit um, and trying to tell a different story that focuses more on the players and their creativity and their excellence uh, and their autonomy, um, the ways in which they cannot be controlled or corralled uh, even if they may at times be exploited. Um, and I think, you know, 
in a certain sense, there, there, I don't, I think I probably mentioned Dawkins in the book. There's no special discussion of him, but you know, he could have an honorary chapter if I were writing it today, because I think he's a great sort of embodiment of the values that I'm trying to advance through this book of players, um, getting free despite the cultural and institutional constraints that are frequently placed upon them. All right. Well, that sounds really uh, fascinating. I'm, I'm excited to uh, check it out when it uh, comes out. And uh, uh, before we... We'll definitely be doing a podcast about that. Yeah. I, I feel that happening. I'll be happy to do that. <laughs> that yes, that, that is going to happen. All right. Well, um, and uh, well, thanks for uh, joining us. And uh, we're, Rich and I are going to take a little break. And then we'll be back to uh, break down some of the highlights of uh, Daryl Dawkins' career in just a moment. Terrific. Thanks, guys. All right, and we are back uh, talking uh, more about uh, Daryl Dawkins' Chocolate Thunder, as he was uh, as, as he was better known. Great, what an all time great nickname! Yeah, I, st- I try to tell uh, my fiance Michelle who I was talking about tonight. I said Chocolate Thunder, and she goes, "That's not his real nickname." I was like, "No, it, it is. I promise." Yeah. Like, it's it's an all time great, like different world back then. You know, I didn't realize, and you know, I, well, I, I didn't realize that apparently Stevie Wonder named him Chocolate Thunder. Yeah, that I had no idea until today was the first time I realized it. That is that's impressive. That when you get a nickname from Stevie Wonder, yeah, like you've arrived. Like there, there's nowhere to. I mean that that's the man right there. Yeah, and I like that. Uh, I, I like Dawkins's quote. Like a guy who never saw me gave me the name Chocolate Thunder. So. <laughs> Um, although I think he, well, debatably so. I don't know. The, did you see those videos on the internet? Maybe he's not. I am. He, he, yeah, he's part of that. Yeah, I think Dawkins was even in that club of the Stevie Wonder Truthers, the people who yeah, think he's I actually know. not not blind. Like I, I actually read something about it, and I'm and I always was almost <laughs> like, huh, that's kind of funny. Like, but anyway, we're, we're, this is not the Stevie Wonder whether it's oh, Wonder oh, blind podcast. What are we talking about? Um. So yeah. I, Dawkins the uh, was named by Saturday Night Live as the Man of the Millennium in 1999. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know about that. And, I'm gonna have to take a little liberty with that. Well, like Darryl, hey, I mean, I who contributed the whole millennium? The millennium. Who contributed more to the millennium than Daryl Dawkins? The whole I mean, millennium. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's top ten at least. The whole thing. Yeah. yeah uh, um. Okay. Yeah. I'll listen to top ten. Who's the other nine right now <laughs> on the spot? <laughs> uh, Jordan. Uh, okay. Hitler. I, I mean, it's it. bad, but you know, he was important. It's a millennium, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, uh, Julius Caesar is he in there? No, I believe I he, that's the wrong millennium. I mean, it's millennium, so yeah, we got, uh, we got a lot. That, that would be, yeah, that'd be the other one. I, yeah, I don't know. It, <laughs> it's you a got weird me. Guy. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to table that next podcast. discussion. Yeah, yeah. But... yeah. Um, so um, he was his he was a rookie in 1976. So he was drafted fifth in the '75 draft. He was the the second player to uh, come out straight from high school and it was the uh, basically two players did Moses Malone was the first to do it in 74 and then 75 uh, um, Dawkins did it and also Billaby, who was basically like a journeyman who um, lasted like 18 years or so didn't do all that much and they were the last two before Kevin Garnett did so but I, I mean I mean imagine coming straight from high school in the culture of the NBA in 1976. I mean, that, that would be pretty difficult to do, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. Like, like Yago said, you know, in our earlier discussion with him is like, we, we kind of take it for granted now because, you know, uh, your standard high schooler in 2015, you know, they, they've been 
you know, playing AU basketball since they were 10. They've had access to pretty much any game that they want at their fingertips as long as they want. They've had, you know, trainers and coaches, nutrition and weight rooms and all that sort of stuff. It's a whole different animal, you know, mid 70s, you know, or late, you know, mid to late 70s coming out of high school. I mean, it, it's got to be night and day compared to, you know, those guys. And, and a lot of it's on a maturity level as well. And that's I, I'm always still stunned that as many guys that do come straight from high school are as mature as they are because it's and of course there are situations or there, there's examples of guys that weren't. But, man, knowing me what I was, you know, when I was 19, like being in a professional sport, like I couldn't even I can't even fathom how I would handle that, you know, you know, mentally and or physically. So, no, it, it's something to be said, especially in the era that they did that and be sort of the trailblazers of it as well is, is impressive because I'm sure there were a lot of guys and I'm sure, you know, in terms of like locker rooms and guys you deal with. I mean, these are you know grown ass men that are you know hanging around with an eighteen year old like that. That's different, you know. Me and my age, I don't want to hang around with eighteen year olds. I doubt like you know some twelve year NBA veteran wants some eighteen year old rolling up and you know taking a spot on the team. Yeah, like, you, know, I, you know, there's a lot. Yeah, I, I could see that being a. Yeah, I think that as that how it affects the team culture, the just the the maturity stuff. I think that is sort of over a little bit when it comes in terms of um, you know whether players should be able to come into. the when they're 18 oh no i i know yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean yeah. yeah i mean i like we don't this isn't the time to get into a deep conversation about that but i do think like that is an important aspect that isn't necessarily talked about like whether you know a player may be ready to pl- contribute on the court or at least something on the court but the being able to handle being a professional and you know and being part of a team with mature that, that's a whole different thing but i mean and and i there's some evidence that doc that really well i mean his first year in 76 only played 100 he only played 165 minutes so played very little apparently he um um his coach gene Chu did not play him because he was um eating chocolate bars on the bench so um you know and, and would like he was in the kind of a culture See, that's where, what i would do if i was an 18 year old right i would be eating twix bars yeah. all the time I mean, he was in a culture where guys were you know like you know drinking and smoking in the locker room and you know it, it they there were a lot of free spirits on that Sixers team, but they, you know, they had sure. gone from, they were the nine win team in 73 to a 46 win team in just three seasons. They had Doug Collins, uh, George McGinnis was the first year there. Steve Mix had been there for a couple of years. Fred Carter had been there since the rough days and Billy Cunningham had come back from the ABA. They also had world be free and uh, Joe Bryant, who would be, you know, who would kind of be part of the next couple of years, uh, strong teams. And in fact, um, you know, Collins said that he thought that, you know, coming in at 18 in, on such like, uh, you know, a veteran and, you know, soon to be championship level team maybe affected his development, made him kind of defer when he, you know, um, maybe in a different situation would have you know, kind of been um, sure. forced to sort of be like the, you know, the, the, the primary guy. But yeah, and I think I think that's another difference too with with, with the culture and, and everything that we talk about now versus then or whatever. Whereas now, when a guy came as you know, I, I think a lot of guys. You talk about a guy like LeBron, who you know comes straight from high school and into the league or whatever. And these guys that are, you know are playing with him have known about him since he was twelve, thirteen, fourteen or whatever. Know what he's capable of. Know that he and understand. Hey, th- that's fine. And and give him the confidence that hey, look, you're the man. Like go do your thing or whatever. Like you're good enough to do this and make this leap or whatever. Whereas I could generally see not that Dawkins wasn't you know a well-renowned you know high school player. 
player. But yeah, I still think at that time it's a whole different animal when, when these guys are just not. I mean, they've just it's never happened before. And you look at guys that are going, you know, what is this guy? And and I could see from Dawkins' standpoint, him not wanting to say, okay, yeah, you know, just give me the ball and let me do my thing. And they're like, oh yeah, who are you? Like you know, we've been, in, you know, we're we're you know veterans. We're this. We're I, I could absolutely see it being a big deal then compared to now. And I think we take it for granted now that we've you know seen so many players. Maybe not you know the prep to pro doesn't happen you know you know now anymore of course. But obviously the one one and dones I don't think are on a different maturity level than than you know a ton of those either. I mean it's 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 not much different. So we talk about that and and you know yeah. But I I think to do it and be like the trailblazer in something like that I think is is really significant. I don't know if we give enough you know, kind of credit to guys like Moses Malone and Daryl Dawkins in terms of being the trailblazers for that. And obviously it took many, many years for it to, you know, come back and it was Kevin Garnett, as you mentioned, but I, I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, that, that has to be a daunting task to be an 18 year old and, and, you know, just hop into the league at, at that time. And in that era is, is, is impressive. Yeah. And in the next year, you know, in the 77 season, Dr. J joins the team, Henry Bibby and Caldwell Jones are added as well. Um, Cunningham retires, uh, and Dawkins only played 684 regular season minutes, but he played 331 in the playoffs. So he was a big part of that. Um, they they made the finals uh, that year after beating uh, the defending champion Celtics and then beating the Moses Malone led Rockets. And um, famously, they we talked about this a bit on our uh, our last podcast. Famously, they made the finals uh, against Portland. They were up 2-0, and then they lost the next four games. And and um, kind of the game changing or the series changing incident was a fight between um, Dawkins and uh, Maurice Lucas, and sort of there was sort of an incident where. Um, you know, uh, after his, t- he felt his teammates didn't, you know, give him his back during that time. He was so mad that he, uh, tore lockers from the walls. He caved in a toilet stall and barricaded the door so that the team could not get back into the dressing room. So, <laughs> and, and that was kind of credited for being, you know, like it'd be basically changing around the entire series and, um, leading to, uh, Portland winning. And I'm sure there was more to it than that, but that's, uh, you know, just a, um, and they were very much a team with a lot of guys, you know, they were a, they had a lot of guys who wanted to score, you know, world be free. Uh, George McGinnis was a gunner, you know, um, Irving was a great player, but he obviously, you know, was, uh, you know, the, the primary scorer generally. So there were a lot, there were a lot of mouths to feed there. So mm-hmm. a lot of interesting chemistry there. Um, uh, but obviously, but I, I think the thing that, you know, he deserves credit for certainly is like, Hey, he's a 20 year old and he's, you know, putting serious minutes in for a team that came very close to winning a championship. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we talked about that a little bit where, where, you know, you have a guy who maybe at this point, you know, the accomplishments. I mean, we talk about, you know, a guy that maybe doesn't have the the sort of resume and the backing. And so and, and this is one of those years where you kind of look at it and you look at, oh, man, you know, with all that talent and with, you know, this guy being one of the primary guys, like, you know, they couldn't do it. And, and you know, again, I, I don't think that's fair at all. And I think, yeah, it, it's we don't really talk about this team all that much because, you know, they didn't you know, end up winning it all, but it's a really, really good, like historically real good team as well. Yeah. I mean, and they made, um, you know, as we'll kind of go through, they made, um, uh, four finals in six years, or I'm sorry, three finals in six years. Um, and, and until, you know, and then they won the championship the year that he left, but it's still, I mean, they were, uh, you know, they were a very good team. They were always contenders there and, and he was a big part of that team and he was gr- yeah. growing in his role. I mean, in 78, he's up to, uh, he's basically a full-time player. He's off the bench, but he's, he's playing 25 minutes a game up to, uh, 1700 minutes. Um, Cunningham becomes the coach six games in that season. 
Um, and they're the same team. Otherwise, they uh, they perform well during the regular season and and sweep the Knicks in the playoffs. But then they were upset by the uh, the Bullets, who ended up winning the title that year in the Eastern Conference Finals. The Bullets only won forty four games, and uh, the the Sixers won like fifty six games, or you know, and yeah. were a real good team. The um, and seventy nine is a watershed year because uh, seventy nine is the he broke two glass backboards in a three week span. The first one, you know, the really really famous one with just like the glass like shatter, you know, shattering, and then um, you know, and, and Robazine like you know putting his hands over his head and everyone trying to get out of the way <laughs> yeah, and. Yeah. I watched that again. I was like, dude, that guy, like, he doesn't get out of the, like, and I get, like, you don't really kind of know what's happening in that moment, but you look at the replay and you look at, you know, Dawkins kind of knows and gets out of the way. But, um, uh, what's it? What you just said his name and I'm yeah, like, Bill Robazine, right yeah. Yeah. He's just like under it. It's just like falling out of it. He's just like, he just covers his eyes with his hands and it's like, oh my God. Like, I can't imagine what that, like, just glass just falling into your face. Like, it, it's, it's, it's really remarkable. It's, it's such a fun video to watch. I've seen it like a hundred times, but just, you know, people replaying it now, it's just, it's just amazing to see it. It's just like the most, you know, poignant display of just, athleticism and strength like you don't just just seeing the guy just rip that thing apart it's just it's it's unbelievable i i love it it's one of my favorite things to watch in nba history like my favorite highlight almost ever of nba history yeah that and the one where Shaq grabs like the whole thing oh yeah uh, like the basket just comes down he just rips it apart it's like oh my god like yeah. what are you like what what is, what the hell All right like, it's just, yeah um i like the it, it's the the chocolate thunder flying robazine crying teeth shaking glass breaking rump roasting bun toasting wham bam glass breaker i am jam so yep uh it took him a week to come up with that one but that's a pretty good name <laughs> that's another great story he, too when, when i was reading the articles people were like what do you call that one doc and he's like uh i don't know yet like yeah. i and then like comes back with a week later with a piece of paper here this is what you should call yeah. it like that's the best part too is that i know this guy generally went home and was like okay okay let's think right. here. like what what am i gonna call this thing <laughs> like i can't like because you can't just throw something out immediately and like it's got to be a big deal because this is like a story thing so I, I i'm glad he waited and, and and made it worth it and this was definitely a, a worth it name so yeah. um so the sixers um they they, they kind of fall, fell a bit to only 47 wins irving had a kind of a down year that year for whatever reason um it, uh, but he bounced back in a big way the next year um and then that was dawkins first year past 2000 minutes which he would basically stay uh for the most part for the rest of his career until he you know started to be filled by injuries um and um, the uh, the Sixers traded McGinnis for Bobby Jones. Roby Free was traded f- to the Clippers for, and I didn't know this until now, for the pick that became Charles Barkley in 84. So, oh, nice. I know, I know you love that uh, sort of thing. <laughs> I do love that, yes. That's, That's uh, Maurice, Maurice Cheek's first, um, his rookie year. And the uh, Sixers beat the Nets that year, who were one of our choices for worst playoff teams um, ever in our worst playoff teams ever podcast. Um, but they fell to the uh, Spurs in seven games in the second round. So, um, so they they that was sort of a um, you know that that was a strong first year for or, or a strong kind of you know first like big year for um, Dawkins, and he averaged. Um, 
uh, 13 points, uh, 6.5 rebounds in 26 minutes a game. The next year, he'd go, he'd he'd play uh, 32 minutes a game, be up to 14 points, uh, seven minutes and eight 8.7 rebounds. That was probably the peak season of his career in Philly in terms of production. When he moved mm-hmm. to uh, New Jersey, he did have uh, like you know slightly stronger raw totals anyway. And he would always um, he was pretty efficient in his shooting. I mean, he led the league yes, in true shooting percentage later on in his career. I mean, he obviously he didn't have much of a range, but I like. I feel like the the other thing about him is like he didn't really have a polished game, but he certainly had an effective game. And I I think people tend to look at like an unpolished game and sort of think like, oh, he's not working hard. You know, when, you know, if it's working, if it's effective, it's effective, you know? Yeah, exactly. No. And yeah, yeah. It's not like, you know, he wasn't going to be your prototypical sort of. Especially at that time, or you know what we think of, I, I got like a Tim Duncan or whatever, like a back to the basket guy who was gonna you know outmove you and outsmart you and all that sort of stuff. He was gonna use a lot of his you know raw ability that he had, and a lot of the raw skills. But yeah, like you said, he he wasn't a guy who just couldn't finish. I mean, when when he got near the rim, he finished, and 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 that's you know he's he's top ten all time in effective field goal percentage. He's you know fourteenth all time in true shooting percentage. Yeah, so he you know it wasn't like a guy who who. Was I mean he was great at that? I mean he was great at putting the ball in the basket when he was nearby. I mean seventh all time in, in, in effective field goal is, is nothing to slouch at. There's a lot of real big guys, guys that are taller than him, probably guys that are stronger than him that that have way less you know rankings than that. So he's he was good at that. I mean that 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 was his game, and you know you can't really fault the guy for that. He wasn't uh, you know he wasn't gonna out you know outwork you with with back to the basket moves and dribbles and all that sort of stuff. But he was gonna score on you if you were near the rim. So absolutely, and um. Then 1980, they make the finals but lose to the uh, Lakers in six. They do uh, blow through the Bullets, uh, the Hawks, and the uh, famously the Celtics. That was Larry Bird's first season. Um, they were roughly the same team, except they added Lionel Hollins in uh, midseason. We talked about that a little bit in our last podcast mm-hmm. as well. Um, and then in 81, they're up to 62 wins. They added Andrew Toney. Uh, that was Doug Collins last year. He only played about 12 games. Henry Bibby was also off the team. So they're kind of making the transition to, you know, they have almost all the key players they would have on the later Sixers teams that would, you know, kind of extend, be pretty good through in, until like 86 or so. Um, and got kind of are have lost most of the guys from the 77 team, mm-hmm. except, of course, for Dr. J. Um uh, and, and then 82, they're st- still just about as good 58 wins, but Dawkins only played in 48 games, although he, um, returned for the playoffs. And that kind of led to like a little bit of a division in the organization because, um, like he thought that, um, that, that, you know, he showed a lot of, you know, hard work and, uh, in coming back from that injury and, um, you know, playing, uh, you know, through, through that and, and coming back early. And then he felt like the, 76ers owner and you know some of the management and coaches you know kind of just said like that they thought he didn't consistently work hard enough for the mm-hmm. money he was being paid and uh, and that was kind of a theme throughout his career. I mean there were a lot of people you know even teammates of his who said like you know yeah maybe he didn't he didn't really work the hardest he didn't necessarily consider it serious business. There were kind of um, there's an SI article that you kind of referenced um, from uh, one of his coaches. I'm blanking on who that was right now, but uh, Dave Wolf. That's right. Dave yes, Wolf. and. Um, you know, and said that, you know, there were kind of split opinions about whether college would have helped him most. People kind of thought he would. You know, Dr. J kind of said, like, well, you know, he didn't always work the hard. I mean, he was a good teammate, but, you know, but if he had worked harder, maybe he wouldn't have been able to handle it either because that would have led to, you know, more issues for him. So, mm-hmm. um, 
but I it was just interesting the way that, you know, he was kind of portrayed and also a little bit of a split personality in terms of, um, you know, being such a generous guy, but also being a little bit weird about like not always paying guys back for things. And, you know, he had some <laughs> some turmoil in his personal life as well. Um you know, that that led, you know, that it talked about. So it was an 88 kind of when he was uh, basically done in his career. We'd have a little bit of a cup of coffee with the Pistons, but that was basically about it, at least for his NBA career. Yeah. And of course, there, there's a few years with the Nets or whatever. And, and you know, famously, what, what he's kind of renowned for, I, I think, in some ways is his his propensity for fouling. And he uh, in two consecutive years, he I think it was what was it? The uh, 83 was his first year. He uh, he set the NBA record for seven or uh, three hundred and seventy nine uh, fouls in his season. And then in 1984, tops his own record with three eighty six. And that, t- that that record remains still the top. So your top two personal fouls in a season, Daryl Dawkins, still your man. So, yeah. Uh, impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Very impressive. Uh, not an all time. I mean, I think he's, I, I forgot. I don't have it in front of me. I think he's, he's top 10 all time in, in personal fouls, but just doesn't have the longevity of other, uh, famous foul men. But yeah, no, he's, he, he's got the, the number one and the number two all time foul seasons. Yeah. His Nets career was, was, I mean, he had, like you mentioned one of his, you know, statistically greatest years, um, in terms of like points and, and, and all those things in 1984, but he started, the injuries started piling up for him and, and his body just kind of betrayed him. And, and that's when it really sort of, in a sense, you know, we don't have very vivid memories of his Nets career, you know, in a lot of ways, yeah. just because there were so few games that he was, he was playing and, and, and when he was playing a lot of the effectiveness was, was, you know, starting to leave yeah. because, the the body was just going. Yeah. I mean, back, knees, feet, ankle. I mean, just everything was kind of piling up. Yeah, I mean, he did have strong years in 83 and 84. And 84, yeah. they did manage to upset the Sixers in the first round, who, of course, were the defending champs. They, they, he had been, tra- you know, the reason he was traded to the Nets is, is to sort of make room for Moses Malone's salary room. Like, uh, Moses was sort of a separate trade based on, you know, he was signed as a free agent and the trade was for compensation. Um and and then, you know, Dawkins was traded before that to, you know, make room salary wise for him and, and I guess somewhat of a role as well. Um, but yeah, in 84, you know, he, um, you know, that, that may have been his sort of his peak years, 27 that year. Um, you know, he was um, 16 and seven or 17 and seven um, for the season. Um, shot well. Other than the propensity to foul, he did well. They um, and he actually led the team in scoring in the second round in a second round loss to the Bucks. He had twenty two point three points per game uh, in that in that series. So you know, I mean, they had they had some potential. Um, you know, I mean, they weren't going to be much better than that. Then they were felt they had their issues too. We talked about that a little bit in the Michael Ray Richardson episode. Exactly. But uh, yeah, and then the next two scenes, he was, you know, yeah, both were injury plague seasons. And then uh, from 87, to 89, he played 26 games over three seasons, played four games in Utah and six in 16 games in Detroit to end his career. He was on the 89 Pistons, but it was not part of the postseason roster. So he did, did, never got a ring, um, unfortunately. Oh. Uh, um, I'm sorry. But, you know, I mean, he had a nice um, he, had, he had a fun post playing career. Um, he spent uh, some seasons in the Italian League. He played for the Globetrotters for a little bit. Um, he in 1996, he was with he would have been about close to 40 by then. Um, yeah. <laughs> he was with the Sioux, Sioux Falls Sky Force of the CBA um and then was you know a a finally retired in 2000 um he as mentioned before was ambassador of the game um made the transition to coaching as well as the head coach of the lehigh carbon community college men's basketball team so you know he was around the game for you know basically his entire life um and did you know uh a lot of neat stuff 
Yeah, and that's uh, unfortunate. I mean, we live in a society now where, where this is, you know, something that's possible. It's, it's almost kind of sad as I went through, you know, Daryl Dawkins' Twitter account because people were saying, oh, he was, you know, just a few days ago tweeting about the Little League World Series or whatever. So I went and I was trying to, you know, look at what he did. And and as I mentioned, you know, in an earlier portion, we, you know, he you see him and he's sharing a bunch of pictures of him just at like a rec center, just teaching. I think they're like 10 or 11 year old girls or something like that. And there's Daryl Dawkins on the sideline in his nice suit. Like coaching them, and that's something like that is just so cool to see a guy who isn't sick of the game at any point. You know, up until the day he died, literally, he was not sick of the game. Like enjoyed the game, still liked going out there, and still, as you said, the ambassador of the game. And I think that's the most important thing that I always got from him. And that's my earliest memories of Daryl Dawkins were you know growing up and and as a judge in the dunk contest. Like every single year, they would cut to the table, and there's Daryl Dawkins in his awesome suit, you know, holding up a number, talking about the guys that are dunking or whatever. And it's just, I just, I, I love that aspect of him. That's something I really just enjoyed about you know researching about him and, and reading about him and all that sort of stuff. Is that Guy who just loved the game of basketball, loved just living, loved being Daryl Dawkins. You know, I, I mentioned the quote earlier. He was perfectly happy just being himself and just a guy who just seemed to enjoy everything uh, about his life. And that that's that's something that's really cool. Like nothing at any point seemed to really get him down or get him depressed or get him upset. Like that's when you read about him and we're reading stories here and we're reading this sort of stuff. And yeah, there was some issues, you know, in the late 70s with his personal life and that sort of stuff. But pretty much from like that point until, you know, earlier this week when he passed away, it, it's – Everything he's pretty much just a guy who just you don't hear anything really bad about him. Nobody says anything bad about the guy. No one says, oh, yeah, but he did this. I mean, it's just the only thing you hear is, oh, he didn't reach his potential. And we kind of talked to Iago. That's, eh, you know, yeah. shut up. Like, who cares? He, yeah, <laughs> like he, he was a yeah. guy that people go away. <laughs> he's a guy people seem to like having around. So that's certainly uh, worth quite a lot. Exactly. And I mean, I, yeah, I, I just love some of the color, colorful stuff uh, uh, about him that, I, you know, he, um, you know, created the whole, you know, uh, a persona that he was the alien from the planet Lovetrond. He <laughs> frolicked with his girlfriend, Juicy Lucy, and spread the gossip of interplanetary funkmanship. Um, it's a, from a flan, friend Blindberry uh, piece at NBA.com. Um, and uh, he had kind of a quote about talking about the, the backboard breaking dunk and said, I wasn't snarling or spit, spitting at anybody. I was never trying to hurt anybody or be mean. I was just having fun. And yes, I knew all about marketing. And, and that's the kind of thing that I think, like, you know, Dawkins was certainly like a guy who, you know, he, he liked to the, have the attention on stuff. He liked to show off. You know, he liked the, um, you know, he liked the, he, you know, signed his first pro contract wearing a bright red suit and top hat. Um, and uh, World Be Free said that uh, Dawkins glowed in the dark, you know, uh, even from his wardrobe, you know. And uh, uh, Mike Dunleavy talks, had a story about uh, how uh, Dawkins drove a Corvette that was painted so many colors that, that Dunleavy said it looked like a meteorite. So, uh, you know, I mean, the, the point being is that, like, it, it wasn't like it was showing off and it was but it was all meant to be in fun. It wasn't like trying to, like, necessarily, like, you know, completely, like, destroy the other guy or, or to be like, you know, to embarrass anyone else. It was just sort of like, you know, just, you know, we need we we want to be a goofball. We want to, um, you know, to have fun. And, and that's. Yeah. And that's neat. I, I think before we go, we need to talk about our favorite dunks and, and some of the best dunk nicknames as well. Yes. Well, actually, two things real sure. quick. Yeah. One thing that I mentioned and, and, and sort of I just wanted to mention this because it was something I, w- I want to talk about when we did this entire thing is that one thing that I got from Dawkins and reading about him and researching him and all that sort of stuff is that and, and you kind of alluded to it in the last point. He was a showman. He was entertaining or whatever. But 
he, he's the rare case of a showman who's also super humble. You, you know, it's, it's very weird, and I, I don't know quite how to describe it, but you, if you kind of know and, and have researched and, and, and looked at Dawkins, that's sort of what he was. He's a guy who, who loved being the center of attention, but at the same time didn't necessarily want to be the... You know what I mean? Like, he, he, was, he was happy just being himself, but also at the same time himself was kind of like, yeah, I kind of want people to look at me. I don't want everybody to, you know, care about every move I'm doing, but you should look at me because I'm pretty fun to, to look at. And, you know, I do fun things and I'm entertaining and all that sort of stuff. And I, I, I thought I enjoyed that. And another thing... um it was a tweet from uh, Dave uh, McMahon, uh, McMahon, I think yeah. I'm pronouncing yeah. it correctly, um, who, who told the tale about his um, his dad. Uh, so essentially, I'll, I'll read the tweet here real quick. It's not a whole lot, but this is like my favorite story <laughs> of the day that I read. Uh, my favorite Daryl Dawkins story told my uh, told to my dad by a former equipment guy for the 76ers and retold by my dad a thousand times. Uh, a thousand times, sorry. Uh, at some point in the early 80s, and the Sixers' regular season practice facility is out of commission for the day. So uh, the players have to report to some rinky-dink high school gym on the main line for practice instead. It's dead of winter. The gym is drafty, low ceiling, stage behind the basket, uneven hardwood floor. You get the picture. Definitely not NBA caliber. The team is warming up and Dr. J complains about the conditions in the layup line. Dawkins tells Irving all in this practice right now before it can even begin. Uh, the, and then he says, the man known as Chocolate Thunder takes his place in the line, goes up for a dunk, purposely tearing the rim down in the process. Practice is over, coach. He went on to tell Billy Cunningham. Uh, yeah, there, <laughs> there's another great story that I, from the uh, from the SI article uh, from Cunningham, where uh, he basically says, uh, Daryl wasn't pushing himself, so I stopped practice. I went over to him and really read him the riot act, really yelled at him. He had his head down and promised me he would do better. Uh, and and then he later says, and then as I walked away, he tripped me. I couldn't believe it. What can you do? I finally cracked up laughing like everyone else. <laughs> How do you get mad at that guy? And the smile, too. I mean, I, I'm sure if he was, even if he was being a real dickhead or something, he just smiled. And you were like, yeah, all right. There like, you go. He just, like, he just had a great, like, such an all-time great smile. We were like, all right. Like, like I'm sure Billy, like, Imagine an NBA coach, like tripping an NBA coach. Like pretty much anybody else would get even chewed out more, but it was him. And I was like, oh, all right. Like, can you imagine Jack? You don't trip Jack. Ramsey, you would probably not trip trip Rick. I don't think yeah. that was going to go well. But probably helpful that Cunningham had just been a player like a year or two before. Exactly. But right, yes. Right, yeah. yeah. So, um, so, so what are your favorite dunks or what's, what's your favorite dunk of his, uh, non backboard shattering, uh, edition? Yeah, I think, you know, going through the highlights and watching, one of my favorite ones, I mean, there, there was one where the NBA had a top 20 uh, Daryl Dawkins dunks uh, video, if, if you want to seek that out. Uh, the number one is, I, I agree with the number one. It, it's probably not my favorite, but my God, there, there's one where uh, someone takes a shot. It, it, it's off or whatever. So three Phoenix Suns go up for a rebound and Dawkins just skies over all of them and does a put back. Yeah. And it's like the most incredible thing because all these guys and these guys aren't just like on their toes. Like they're kind of jumping, but he just jumps so far ahead of all of them that he just goes and gets the rebound. And, you know, dunks. it's just incredible. That's uh, I'm cool with that. Number one, uh, the one that I love, though, and it's it's one of my favorite dunks of all time. And guys don't really do it anymore. It's very like a it's very 80s. It's very, you know, late 70s, 80s is perfect for him is, is the, you know, the behind the head two handed dunk, like the ferocious like those guys don't do that one anymore. And if they do, it's very rare. But like that, you know, what I mean, where you completely bent elbows and just bam, just throw that thing in there. And, I, and that's one of my favorite ones to do on like, you know, I'm not coordinated enough. So when I'm dunking on like seven foot rims, I can't really do like between the legs and all that. But so I have to do this one. And, and that's sort of just my favorite one because there's just so much power and you can make the sound of that one sound so cool because you just throw that ball down. And, and, and Dawkins was so good at that one. I loved when he did that one. But yeah, that's going to be my favorite. I, I don't have a specific one. I don't know what he named that one. But yeah, the, the behind the head, you know, two handed, just 
jam right right there. I, I love that one. Yeah, uh, mine. I liked the uh, the like the swing over the shoulder. I, I guess it's sort of a windmill type jump dunk. Uh, it was number seven on the list, and I, I see it done otherwise. Otherwise, but that one is just. Like for him, like at that, like size and strength, like kind of get that rotation and get like that, you know, um, I mean, it wasn't just like a power dunk. It was like a grace and power dunk. Yeah. And that's I think that's one of the things of, of watching this sort of highlights is is that's a guy who, you know, he had this ferocious dunks and he had obviously I mean, we, we talked about that a bunch, but he had also ones, too. And, and watching those highlights where there were ones that were pretty finesse style. I mean, if, if he was a guy who, as you said, in terms of like the dunk culture, if he had came up, you know, 10 years later or, you know, 15 years later, like a guy like, you know, being that size and being able to have that combo. I mean, that that's a that's a dunk contest legend there. You, you know, a guy that can kind of do both those things of finesse and power. But, you know, of course, he came in, a, in an era where it wasn't quite at that level yet. But, yeah, no, it, it, it's I, his dunks are, are the thing of beauty. And, and you don't want to just focus on the dunks and just focus on that. But but still, you know, the guy was an all time great dunker. Like, there's no way around it. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, as far as the nicknames go. So uh, these are all the nicknames that I could find for uh, the, his dunks. Um, Yo Mama. Spine Chiller Supreme, Rim Wrecker, Dunk You Very Much, Hammer of Thor, Opadop, Gorilla, Sexophonic <laughs> Turbo Delight, Look Out Below, The In Your Face Disgrace, The Cover Your Head, and The Spine Chiller Supreme. So, so what's your favorite name? Uh, I think I'm going to go with Gorilla because uh... – oh, let's see. Oh, man. that was that. I, I jumped into that. I shouldn't do that. Let me uh, – let's think here. I think the in your face disgrace. Oh, see, that was gonna be mine. So now I'm sorry. Yeah, read them all. I mean, that that is the that is definitely that one's great. I like the dunk you very much, (laughs) and you know the the saxophone turbo delight. I'm not gonna turn up my nose at that one. You know, I wish I owned an ice cream parlor. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like these are all really awesome. (laughs) Like, like, did he ever do that? Did he ever franchise a series of of ice cream? It it could be like a Daryl Duncan's. You know. Right, yeah. like oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, how did he not do? I, he had to have done. Yeah, that, right. I mean, it, you would you would think so. Maybe, what a waste. Maybe the, dunk, maybe the Dunkin' Donuts people. If you could just like co- coordinate with the Dunkin' Donuts people, that would have been you know, there's, there's exactly a good yeah. idea there. I gotta imagine the Ben and Jerry's Corporation called that man at some point to uh, name. Right, like they, there's no way there wasn't an ice cream flavor that he wasn't at least at some point consulted on. Right. Yeah. There's just no way. There's no. I'm not listening to it. There's no way. So. <laughs> um. So anything else, Rich? No, I think that's it. I think we did a, a good job covering him. And, you know, like you said, it, it's it sucks because this is the guy that was always on our list of a guy. Hey, let's do like a really long, you know, in-depth podcast about. And unfortunately, we kind of he jumped the list by a lot. And that, you know, it's it's unfortunate like that, you know, that we had to do it under these circumstances. But with that said, I think you look at this guy and I think what's been cool about the past few days is it's been and that's that's what I really like when when. You know, I don't I don't like death, of course, but when death can be sort of a, a situation where people can, you know, either discover stuff they didn't know, learn about a guy's career, learn about a guy's life and just celebrate his life and celebrate his career and all that sort of stuff. And that's been the best thing that I've enjoyed about this week. And, you know, the stuff after, you know, his passing is people have come out with these great stories and these great articles and I'm just seeing videos and all that sort of stuff. And it's a guy that you're you're getting an extra appreciation for. And it sucks that it takes the death to do that. But in a lot of ways, it's it's let me appreciate this guy a lot more, and a guy that I I don't think I necessarily did appreciate, you know, very much until his passing. So it sucks in that respect, but it's cool too that we can come on here and, and talk about him and talk about his career and talk about his life and and you know really enjoy doing it and really have a fun time with it. So yeah, for sure. Um, 
So uh, you can check us out. Uh, of course, we're podcast is is housed at harvardparoxysm.com. Uh, you can uh, over and back now has its own iTunes feed in addition to the HP Network iTunes feed. So we would love uh, reviews and um, and ratings in both if possible. But uh, but either one, we would be happy. Um, and uh, you can find our forums at overandbacknba.com. Uh, we're on Twitter and Facebook, both at overandbacknba. And um, and yeah, we'll be back uh, next week with some more episodes of our Top 50 Project, which we plan to uh, continue until just before the season begins. So hopefully everyone's enjoying that. Hopefully everyone uh, enjoyed our uh, last episode on uh, the breaks of the game, which is one of my favorite ones I've ever done. So um, uh, until next time, thanks very much. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.